All right, well, we are going to start by, by saying something pretty dramatic. I hope it's not overdramatic, but uh, I'm a little sensitive to people who, who overplay things. But I think three words determine the course of every life, every family, certainly every church, every community, every nation, and the world. Three words. And, and I know that sounds a bit much, a little extra there, but I truly believe how we use these three words means everything. Here are two of the words. God is blank. How we finish this sentence determines the course of every life, every family, every church, every community, every nation, and the world. This means everything. And I'll, I'll tell you how, how much this matters. We might fill in that blank with this word, retributive. God is retributive. It means he gets back at you, right? Retribution means that God must be appeased or he will destroy us or make our lives miserable. He'll get back at us if he's not happy. A lot of people believe God is retributive. Now, in, in more ancient civilizations, more ancient cultures, virtually everyone believed God was retributive. In fact, there was this very disturbing archaeology dig in Peru among the Chimu tribe. And that Chimu tribe sacrificed their children. It's, the, it's the, the, the biggest child sacrifice site ever unearthed. And I won't be too graphic here. These are 500-year-old uh, skeletons. 140 children were sacrificed and 200 baby llamas were sacrificed. Now, this was astounding. This even grabbed the archaeologist emotionally. I mean, they find all kinds of stuff, all kinds of bones, all kinds of digs, but to to dig up 140 babies with their chests cut open to pull out their hearts and their face covered with red paint to the gods. It, it affected them emotionally. Just, just imagine what that might be like. So, so they were asking the questions, why would a civilization do that? And they dug and dug and dug and they found these mud flats. And what they, what they now believe, and there's good evidence to support this, is that the Chimu tribe was experiencing the impacts of an El Nino season. So it was raining and raining and raining and they could not get crops and they could not get a livelihood. They could not keep their people alive. And so everything they were doing to appease a, a retribute of God was not working. So they decided, the elders decided, we are gonna give God everything, all of our children, all of our baby um, llamas. And it, it just wrenches at the heart. How could somebody believe that? But I'm telling you, even us today, as sort of this you know, remnant of, of ancient religious culture, some of us today believe that God will get back at us if we offend him. Another way to fill in that blank, that God is conquering. God is conquering. Um, a lot of religions, major religions, were formed from this idea that God is a conquering God. Islam is probably the most famous. You have this religion that is birthed in a culture of, of, of war and conquest. And so uh, God is kind of created to justify war. Uh, that happens all the time. You can even make an argument that, that that happened with the Hebrew people. You read your Old Testament and you see that a forming of who their God was happens in the midst of conquest, right? They leave Egypt. They're this, you know, kind of uh, traveling, wandering, nomadic, uh, Semitic group, and they're needing land to call their own. And, and so their relationship with God was justifying their conquest of the, of the nation and the land of Israel. And, and then something happened um, that brought that to a halt, an absolute stop. They hit a wall when the Assyrian Empire comes in and, and takes and, and makes extinct 12, 10 of the 12 tribes in the north, just wipes them out, wipes them out. And then about 100 years later, the Babylonians come in and they take captive the two remaining tribes of the south. 
And while they're in captivity, their view of God changes from a God of conquest to a God that is about preserving the remnant of Israel. And so it really is astounding what happens when, when we think that God is a conquering God. In fact, even Western imperialism uh, was fueled by this theology that God is a conquering God. And so as we conquer other nations, it's advancing the kingdom of heaven. Things can go very wrong when we believe God is a conquering God. But again, there's still a remnant of that even today. There's this remnant thinking that, you know, boy, the, the more Christian nations expand by war, the more God's kingdom will expand. Or worse yet, there's people who still believe that in the end, the end times, God will come down as a great conqueror. Jesus will come down as a conqueror and literally slaughter billions of people. Now, thankfully, that theology popped up in the 20th century and is rapidly declining right now hopefully becoming extinct in a short period of time because this is, is not a, a way to look at God, that he's a conquering God. A, a very popular belief in my perspective is that God is a petulant God. We wouldn't say it, but this is how we live or how we perceive God. I love that word petulant because it's, uh, it, it brings to my mind kind of this child king, a child king who has everything but doesn't have the maturity to know how to deal with disappointment. So the child king has all the money, all the authority, and if somebody offends him, doesn't make him feel right, he'll send his legions to go get back, right? This petulant king. Now the word petulant, I love it because it can be defined this way. Sulky, crabby, grumpy, moody, cantankerous, and irritable. And some of you are thinking, I'm sitting next to somebody who is <laughs> you know, this petulant you know, person. But that's, that's a lot of times how we see God. He has everything. But boy, if you disrespect him, if you don't honor him, if you don't worship him properly, boy, he'll send the legions and he'll get after you, right? If you don't do what he wants you to do, if you're not obedient enough, whatever, then he will get you back. Petulant. A lot of us believe God is petulant. Another way to fill in this blank, that God is abusive. Now, that word abusive is thrown out a lot. And uh, you know, we need to be real careful, but we also need to understand that abuse is more pervasive than we would like to consider it. The way I'm defining, defining abusive, especially in this context, is this way. A threatening presence always reminding you that you're not good enough. A threatening presence always reminding you that you're not good enough. Now, sometimes this can happen through violence and abuse of all kinds, verbal abuse, but that's the basic tone of abuse. Is it's a threatening presence. In other words, you are the weak one and, and, and the abuser is the strong one. And the manipulating tool is you're not good enough, you need to do more. Now, doesn't that sound like a lot of church environments, a lot of religious environments? As we've talked about more than once around here, there's a normal religious cycle that happens just about every Sunday, and it's this, that God is perfect, you stink, although I wasn't thinking of the word stink here, and do better, do better. That, that's kind of the normal church world, and this, this is from a context that God is abusive. He's a brooding threat. I mean, he is, he is the almighty, right? And he's the perfect one. And here the pastor is sent to let us all know how we fail and how we should do better, and, and you better do better, or this abusive God is gonna make your life kind of miserable. He's gonna ruin your life. He's not gonna answer your prayers. And if you keep blowing it, you could burn in hell forever. I mean, you talk about abusive. That's abusive. There's another way to fill in that blank, that God is energy, God is energy, that God is not a, a volitional, personable, relatable um, uh, you know, being to, to, ha to be in relationship with. He's more of an energy. And a lot of the Eastern worldviews believe that God is energy. And what that does is it, it really compels people 
to deny their humanity. And, and this, is, this is very normal. And if you look at the impact of this worldview on societies, oftentimes it is, it is horrific. It's not good. As people deny their humanity uh, to meld into the energy that is the divine, it has a real impact. Uh, another way to fill in this blank is that God is dead. Pretty popular in 20th century atheism, God is dead. And, uh, and this has an impact as well. Sometimes the impact varies for sure, but it, it can create a sense of emptiness, that there's not a purposeful grounding under my foot, that really I am a series of colliding particles. Atheism really is, is, is fatalism. At that bang, wherever it came from, um, nothingness, the big bang that came from nothingness already predetermined everything that would ever exist. The fact that I'm doing this right now was predetermined at the Big Bang. There's no, it's just random colliding particles. So, so atheism tends to dehumanize us as well. And, and, and what it tends to do is to create the sense that I'm just a piece in the machinery of the cosmos. And this has even been applied in, in state systems. So you have the, you know, the old Soviet Union and you have Maoism and, and other forms of communism that teach people there is no God, there is no abiding uh, meaning and purpose in your life that's transcendent. You're just, you're colliding particles in the machinery of the cosmos. You're a cog in the machinery of the state. And that has real impact. How we fill in that gap has real impact. Today we're talking about 1 John 4. 1 John 4 fills in that blank. That God is not retributive. He's not conquering. He's not petulant. He's not abusive. He's not energy. He's not dead. But very simply put, 1 John 4 says God is love. God is love. Now, if you've grown up in church circles, you might have heard this from 1 John 4 so often, the weight of it, the power of it may be lost on you. So we're going to land on this really, really well today. And I hope it's going to transform some things in your life. God is love. So here's the verse, 1 John 4, 16. I think 1 John circles around this passage. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I want to repeat that sentence because it's going to come up here. To know and believe the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So what does it mean that God is love? What that means is that love isn't just a thing he does outside of himself. Love isn't just a part of God's nature on a long list. But love, in fact, is more than just a quality of his that he exercises and pulls back as he wishes. Love is, in fact, who he is. God is love. He is love through and through. All of who he is and everything he does is to express his nature, which is love. Now, I get criticism quite a bit for how much we talk about grace, how much we talk about love, and it's the same conversation over and over. So if you're going to come to me about it, I'm going to spare you some time. You ready? Treadway, it's love and grace, lots of love and grace. When are we going to get to the meat? When are we going to get to the meat? Now, I know what meat is. I've been around church world long enough to know what meat is. Meat is you're going to bring down the hammer, right? You're going to bring down the hammer. And I always tell people the same thing. So you want me to bring down the hammer on you, right? Oh, no, not me. That guy, right? It's the same religious formula. Bring the hammer, preacher. Not on me. What I believe is right. Well, how I live is right, but that person over there, right? It's the same old thing. So I, I, I then kind of point back to a reality that, 
that love and grace is not just ear tickling, it's not just easy, it's not just feel good, but in fact, I believe the hardest thing in the world is believing we're really loved. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to believe we're really loved. In fact, I've talked to thousands of people about this. I love of God, love of God, we hear about it a lot. Love of God, John 3.16 on the golf course sign. I mean, we see it out everywhere, right? God so loved the world. We talk about love so often, but if you ask people two or three really pointed questions, they will reveal, literally everyone will reveal, hell, I'm not really loved fully and unconditionally. You ask a couple of pointed questions and you're gonna prick that little piece of guilt that somebody's still hanging on to, that thing that they did that they just can't believe they're forgiven over, that, that guilt that carries with them every day about something they did, the weight of knowing that they're not good enough, that they should be doing better. God wants more from me. God loves me so much. Why can't I stop this private habit that nobody knows about? Why do I still have these disgusting thoughts in my head, right? Why can't I be more religious, more devout, more generous? Why can't I be you know, more of a God honor? Why can't I have more faith? Why do I still have doubts? I mean, all these things condemn us. All these thoughts condemn us before God. So we can talk about love and talk about grace, but the hardest thing in the world is to truly believe we're loved the way God says we're loved. And so don't give me this, it's ear tickling and easy. The hardest thing to do is believe we're loved unconditionally by God. There's a couple of reasons for it. I think one of the key reasons is we don't understand love. We just don't understand what love is. I mean, we say things like love at first sight. Ooh, I look at that, I just throw up in my mouth. What, what is worse? 73% of Americans believe in love at first sight. And when I saw that, I thought the end of the world is here. It cannot be true. It cannot be true. This must be a middle school survey. No, it's actual real adults believe love at first sight. Ugh. And we say things like fall in love, fall in love. You don't fall in love, you fall in a ditch. You fall down the stairs. You don't fall in love. If you fall in love, it means you could fall out of love. That's not love. That is not love. We don't understand. If you believe the show The Bachelor has anything to do with love, you don't get it. Now I know some of you are saying, that's a sensitive subject, sir. I will leave the church over that one. I understand, there's, there's like a little private, vice about The Bachelor, and, and I, listen, I get it. I totally get it. This isn't condemning. It's just, you know, just let me have my little private vice. I slip into this Bachelor world. It's entertaining. It's dramatic, but I know that's not real love. I hope that's what it is. I'm going to read you a definition of, of love the way we incorrectly define it. In order to really get us in the mood, we're going to play a little track here. Here it is. Ready? Love. Love is a deep, tender, ineffable feeling of affection and solicitude toward a person arising from a warm feeling of intense desire. A heartfelt drawing to the attractive qualities of another, a deep sense of underlying oneness, a feeling of attraction toward a person with whom one is disposed to bond with in the emotion of romance, an intense emotional attachment for a person who is the object of deep, powerful affection. All right. Enough of that. Just no, 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 that's not love. That's not love. Now, I'm not saying this is bad if you have these feelings towards somebody, towards your spouse. 
uh, at times. <laughs> Fantastic. True, and I, I, I truly hope this feeling in your marriage it happens more often than not. I hope. It's great. I hope your February 14th was all about this, including the Kenny G, right? <laughs> Fine. That is great. But this isn't love. This isn't love. That kind of love will destroy a marriage. If that's the definition of love, what happens when you don't feel this way? Out, bye. That kind of love will not make a child being raised in a house feel unconditionally loved. As long as you feel wonderfully towards your children, all is great, but as soon as they don't meet your expectations, all this goes out the window. I mean, they're not feeling unconditionally loved. This kind of love doesn't sustain. If this is the kind of love we think God wants of us, that feeling, I can feel God's presence, sense God's presence, I feel that oneness, right? with God, if that's the definition of love, we will never truly understand what love is for God and our family, nowhere. Our definition of love's a mess. I'm gonna suggest a different definition. Love is the spontaneous, willful, self-sacrificing, and active commitment to meet the needs of another. Some of you are saying, boring. <laughs> Sounds like work. It is. Remember I said it's the hardest thing in the world? The hardest thing in the world is to be loved like this, harder yet to love like this. I mean, this is not easy. By spontaneous, we mean there's, there's no reason. It just happens. And willful, you just decide to make it happen, right? There's a little bit of a danger when we talk about love. There's a, a bit of a danger to list why you love someone. Now, it's good. I, I gave my wife that kind of list on February 14th. This is why I love you. But there's a danger to that because what if the circumstance changes? What if the reason why I love her actually changes by any reason? Life circumstance, an accident, right? So loving somebody because of a list is dangerous. We love without reason. We love because we made a willful covenantal commitment that I will sacrifice myself and live to meet your needs above my own. That's love. There's nothing harder in the world to be loved like that than to love like that. Sometimes when, when people tell me, hey, I'll just talk about love and grace, where's the meat? I say, listen, you love like that, then we'll talk. After you learn to love like that, then we'll talk. I never have a second meeting. Love is powerful, it is so powerful, it's so meaningful. When this is unlocked, as 1 John 4 says, when we know and believe that God is love, when we know and believe that God is love, it's his nature, it's who he is, every bit of my relationship with him is about him pouring out love on me, not about me pouring love to him. We'll see that here in a bit. God is love. When we know this and believe it, everything changes. And we'll see here in 1 John 4, 9 that God demonstrates love is action. And yeah, you can say it's, it's a little bit of work. It's, it's a pouring out for somebody else's benefit. Here's how God showed his love for us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. That's not God's primary interest is he, we love him so he loves us. No, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. In covenant, the Godhead sent Jesus into the world, committed to send him in to be swallowed by the suffering of the world, to be swallowed by the sin of the world, to be swallowed by the world's failure. He died as a victim of this world's suffering, sin, and failure. But love rose him from the dead to tell all of us that love is victorious, that love 
wins, that love is more powerful than everything, right? More powerful than everything. This is how God showed his love for us, actively, volitionally, willfully, in a self-sacrificing way, gave himself for our benefit. That is love. That is love. It is the spontaneous, willful, self-sacrificing and active commitment to meet the needs of the other. God did that for us through Christ. Jesus even did that while he was being crucified. This is the astounding thing about the person and the work and the nature of Jesus. While he was being crucified, he showed selfless, sacrificial love. We see his interaction with Pontius Pilate, and it's fascinating. You've got Pontius Pilate who is, is receiving pressure from Rome and pressure from the Jewish government and pressure from the crowd, shouting, crucify him. He also knows Jesus is innocent. He said so. And Jesus cares for Pilate in more than one way in that moment to, to relieve him of some burden. Jesus, while being crucified, cared for the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He cared for his mother, gave her to John. He cared for the centurions, the soldiers who were crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he gave his life to pay for the sins of the world. Wow. That's Jesus' commitment. That's Jesus' love for us. And that love has an impact. That love changes everything. If we can know and believe the love that God has for us, then this permission to live wells up and we start really living this new and eternal life that God designed for us. And, and here's how that works out. 1 John 4, 11 through 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Hear what John is saying here. Everybody wants to see God. Everybody wants to, some evidence that God actually exists. Show me a sign, this healing, a wonder, right? Some miracle. Everybody wants to see God. And, and John's sympathetic to that. But he says God cannot be seen. God can't be seen. But if you love one another, the world will see me. He repeats this in his gospel, the gospel of John in, uh, in chapter 17. John is the apostle of love. He's, he's the apostle Jesus loved. He wrote about love eloquently, prolifically in the gospel of John and here in 1 John. He knows the love of God because he saw the love of God in Christ. And he understands that if we are, are gonna commit ourselves to be loved then to love other people, that's how people will see God. People will see God when they see the love of God in us. That's the vision here. So let's focus on love. Let's focus, let, let that be our drive, right? God will be seen by our love. God will be seen by our love. Finally, what does this love look and feel like? First John 4, 18 through 19. Now, I, I wanna give you a, a little heads up. Every syllable in this passage means everything in every relationship. And we'll see how that works out. So pay close attention here. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. There's some powerful things in here, powerful things. There is no fear in love. I'm gonna say it again, no fear in love. Fear and love cannot coexist. Fear and love cannot coexist. So in any relationship you have, if there is fear, there is not pure love. What does this mean in terms of our relationship with God? Well, we should not fear God. And I will ask you, I will urge you, do not fear God. Do not fear God. Now, I have a, a deep respect for God. He is the creator, right? Created the heavens and the earth, the cosmos with a word. I mean, he is, he is holy. He is perfect in every way. I have a deep and abiding respect for God, but I don't fear God. 
And I will tell you, in, in my grace awakening, I have a long way to go. I have not arrived, but I will tell you, there's not a day that goes by where I fear God. I do not fear God. I don't fear that he's gonna get me for something I do. I do not fear that because of you know, my disobedience or lack of faith or whatever, that he's not gonna answer a prayer. I have no concerns about my afterlife. To live without fear comes as a result of knowing how loved I am. And, and you could live without fear of God by simply knowing how loved you are. It does not matter what you have done. In Christ, you're forgiven. It doesn't matter whether there's a lack of faith or commitment or devotion. You are his child, his dearly loved, perfect, holy, without blame, son and daughter. To believe that, to know and believe that means that there is no fear in our relationship with God. Doesn't that sound cool? Zero fear of God. That's the kind of life that we can have. And that means everything in our relationships with others. In our family, there should be no fear. In our family, there should be no fear. Now, I know that's a little tough because we have a lot to navigate in our family, right? Family's a very complicated animal. And in family, there's a ton of ways to manipulate each other. And one of the ways we manipulate each other is through fear. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. I'll give you one obvious example. And forgive me here. Don't look. I'm going to take off my belt. All right. Take out the belt. Now, this is old school, right? This is old school. Wait till your father gets home, right? Wait till your father gets home. Now, if you grew up in that kind of environment where the belt was used or wooden spoon or whatever, that sense of fear when you were young was some dread, dread. Now, you may have understood that dad loved you or mom or whoever was, was pouring out this on, on, your, on your behind. Um, you may have understood that there's love, but there's also fear. So there's an imperfect love where there is fear. An imperfect love where there is fear. The vision here is to have a fearless relationship with God that pours out into a fearless relationship with others. There should be no fear in our family. No fear in our family. Some of us believe that you know, God has a belt. We blow it, he's gonna get us back, right? We can live free from that. And once we know how loved we are by God, it's a fearless relationship with God. He just pours out goodness upon us. We can then begin to navigate what a fearless family looks like. And, and here's a list. It's an overwhelming list. I just, wanna, I just wanna let you know, this list is overwhelming and some of you are gonna get, I, that sounds too unrealistic. Just put this list as a marker in your head about what your family could look like. There should be no fear of violence in your home. If there's a fear of violence in your home, you have a problem to work out. Fear pushes out love, pushes out love. Some of you are living under a brooding fear of violence in your home. Reach out to us. We have ministries and partnerships to get you help. We can help. Even if you're the perpetrator, we can help. Reach out. There should be no fear of violence. There should be affection. There should be no fear of rejection. Rejection is one of those you know, fear-based tools we use in our family. There should be nothing but acceptance. No fear of put-downs. Put-downs are it comes so easily, right? We've we, we got to get people on our side and we've got to prevent people from doing things we don't want so we put them down, right? There should be encouragement. No fear of name-calling. That rolls off the tongue. There should be blessing, pouring out blessing instead. There should be no fear of bringing up the past because there should be forgiveness in our home and there should be no punishment. 1 John 4 says fear is fueled by punishment. There should be no punishment. Now, I know, I know you look at this and you're thinking, uh, uh, Treadway, no way. <laughs> No way. Well, let me just respond by saying way. There is a way. I mean, 
our family, the Treadway family, walked through this. And, and when my brother and I were growing up in our home, we walked through all this. And, and we got victory in every single one of these areas. And, and as a result of the lessons learned in, in the family that I was brought up in, I'm telling you that this is largely where our home life is at right now. It's, it's a wonderful place to, to be, and every family can get here. I'm telling you, every family. I don't care how messed up you are. In fact, the more messed up, the better, as far as I'm concerned. When I get a, that first counseling appointment with a family who's just like a disaster, this is the last, we've been to counselors, we've been to this, we've been to that, and we've been to retreats, and we've been to whatever, and they, and they come desperate. The love of God can change any family. I've seen it happen. And there doesn't need to be punishment here, Right? There is no punishment in love. Isn't that what it says in 1 John 4? No punishment in love. And, and this really blows people's minds. Well, there's got to be punishment. There's got to be a threat of punishment. I mean, I don't drive 85 miles an hour on Temecula Parkway because there's, a stop, there's signs, speed limit signs, and there's police officers, and the fine is going to be stiff. So I don't speed because of fear of punishment. Well, isn't there a, a better reason not to speed? Can you, can you think of a, of a better reason not to drive recklessly? What's that reason? You don't want to slaughter a family, right? That's a more mature reason not to speed. We don't need, the more mature we are, the fewer rules we need, the fewer threats we need, the fewer threats of punishment we need. It's about walking a, a journey of love, and the most loving thing I could do is not drive 85 miles an hour on any road because I just might take out a family, right? So we live a life of love, we don't need rules. If we live a life of love, we don't need threats of punishment because we're looking out for each other. Some people will say, well, I pay my taxes because I don't want the IRS to bear down on me and, you know, find me or garnish wages. Well, there's, there's more mature reasons to pay our taxes. How about grades? Are kid get, kids getting grades? I want my kids to get good grades, to get into a good school, to make a good job, make good money so they can take care of me when I'm old, right? The American dream. Um, what's going to be the motivation for my kids getting good grades if it's not about punishment, I'm going to give you just the, the slightest example, and try not to roll your eyes at this example, because you're going to think, well, what does that mean to my family, my situation? I'm just telling you just a little example. Um, I've got three kids who have graduated from high school. They're in college, one recent college graduate, and we've got this um, uh, beautiful child, Aubrey, and uh, she's 11, 11 years old. Aubrey is amazing. You'll see her out there dancing, singing, helping out in nursery. She's an artist. She's got that artist spirit in her. It's beautiful. Then there's the idea of sitting down in a classroom, you know, for six hours a day, hustling work. That's not quite, she doesn't wake up, well, I can't wait to hustle the schoolwork, right? She's this free spirit artist. So we sat down with her at the beginning of the year and we said, okay, Aubrey, what is your, what's your goals? What are your goals here? And uh, in every subject, just what are your great goals? Well, I can do this here, this here, this here. We looked at her goals and thought, yeah, that's a pretty good stretch for her. And so what we said is, hey, what do you want to do if you meet these goals? What do you want to do at the end of the year? Oh, I want to do this. This is a big thing. It's kind of a costly thing. So my wife and I plan, okay, we could do that. If she does these goals, we could party like this. And we'll walk with you the entire year. The entire year, we'll walk with you to meet your goals. Now, she may or may not meet those goals. If we meet those goals, we party. If we don't meet those goals, she has stretched this year, unlike previous years, and we're walking together on that. Now, can you see how a relationship of love doesn't necessarily require punishments? No belts required in terms of Aubrey's grades. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, but I got a 17-year-old who's a righteous disaster. I understand that. I've had three kids go through high school. I was a youth pastor for 20 years. There ain't nothing I haven't seen in terms of adolescence, right? I understand it, but here's what I could tell you unequivocally. 
A culture of fear, threats, and punishment never works. Never works. You pull out the belt until they're 11. By the time they're 14, they're laughing in your face saying, don't hurt your arm. That means I got to go harder, right? What didn't work before certainly will work if I keep doing it. No. Fear, threats, punishment doesn't work. Does not work. Love does work. And love is more tricky. Love is more nuanced. Love requires more time, more discussion, more questions, right? But love can, can lead to everyone's best. It just simply takes more time. Because the reality is law, rules, punishment doesn't work. The Bible says so. And by the way, the Bible's full of laws. And then the Bible says none of them worked. Hebrews 7.19 says this. I'm just quoting the Bible. The law made nothing perfect. But Bible, you gave us the law. The law was never intended to make us better. The law was intended to bring us to Jesus, to show us a God of love. The law never made anything perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is the better hope, drawing near, understanding God's love for us. As Hebrews also says, to, to, to be boldly in the presence of God by grace. That's what transforms. That's what transforms. If we learn to be loved, which is very difficult, if we learn to be loved, we will then learn to love. And that's where true life is lived. True life is lived in a loving relationship with God. True life is lived when we take that love and share it with others. And it's a journey. There's nothing harder in the world. Give me meat. Yeah, right. Learn to love. And learning to love starts with learning to be loved. That's the true substance of life. I'm going to close with some lyrics from Propaganda from a track of his called It's Complicated. And he's got a passion to have people understand who they are in Christ. And, and he expresses things in a very powerful way here. His, his whole argument is we don't understand who we are, an image bearer of God, and so we give ourselves to lesser things, kind of scrambling around. Let me, let me read this to you. We are often our own demise. We are so often wrong about who we are and don't even know it. We self-identify as particle board, paper mache, or duct tape. We may scratch ourselves raw to erase the image of God we were made in. Smoke, snort, sex, drown out the silence. We may waste our life savings on makeovers to try to rhinoplast our daddy's nose away. But no nip, no tuck could cut away the sense of obligation to become who we aren't. We are becoming what we're not, but what we are is inescapable. And so he then makes a transition to, to, to stop running away from this image of God that we are, dearly loved son and daughter of God, declared perfect, holy, blameless in his sight. Let's stop giving ourselves to this lesser, this lesser idea of longing to be loved by others in thin and meaningless ways. Let's get back to who we are, right? He says this, you're a masterpiece fighting to be a silly selfie with a hideous filter. You're, you're heaven's handmade calligraphy slumming it among papyrus fonts. Some social media commentary there. You are the complete and perfect work of a perfect and eternal poet laureate, yet you have a laundry list of identity issues. You are the complete and perfect work of a perfect and eternal poet laureate, yet we have identity issues. You are the rightful heirs, not to just a kingdom, but a universe, and you have your father's eyes. 
Stop being traitorous. Know that you're a revelation revealed. To love is hard, but it's life. It's who you are. It's messy and uncomfortable and complicated. Let's pray. Our God and Father, your love and grace is not just ear-tickling, easy stuff. There is nothing harder than knowing and believing how loved we are by you. Every failure, every nagging emotion of guilt, everything that we've done that we know we shouldn't and everything we don't do that we know that we should stands to condemn us and that condemnation is only highlighted very often when we go to church or where we go to you in prayer and so we're discouraged. And we go through motions and we may give ourselves to lesser things to try to prove to ourselves that we are okay and try to prove to others that we're okay. God, truly what we need to do is just know how loved we are by you, unconditionally, fully loved by you, embraced by you, declared holy, blameless, declared your sons and daughters. You accept us as we are where we are. To learn to be loved by that is hard. But God, this is where belief comes in. This is where faith comes in. At this very moment, no matter what we feel, we believe that we are loved by you unconditionally. We believe that we are forgiven of everything we have done or ever will do. We believe that we have your full embrace. We believe that we have been loved before the beginning of time, that we've been forgiven before our first sin, that there is nothing that can now or ever will separate us from you. We believe and know we are loved by you. And God, help that reality uh, well up within us so that we would learn how to love others, to love our spouse, to love our kids, where there's no fear, no threat, no condemnation, no put-downs, where there is acceptance and grace and forgiveness. Teach us how to love unconditionally those that we don't even know, the stranger, the sick, the poor, the homeless, those overseas, those who are in need. God, you will be known in this world because your people know how to be loved and know how to love. Help that to be our life's vision. In Christ's name we pray, amen.